From years of anxiety to warrior and mentor, Bradley Robinson created the Anxiety Project to help you end your anxiety naturally. Let's mold the new you and let's end anxiety together. Hello and welcome to episode 146 of the Anxiety Project podcast. I am Brad Robinson. Today is part two and the final part of the great knowledge I learned from book series where where I talk about powerful passages that greatly influenced me in my recovery and reshaped how I perceive the world and myself. Now, the first book I'll get to today is Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth. This was the first book that opened the floodgates, that opened up my mind to a different realm of existence, this spirituality that I didn't know existed, this freedom within me that I am not who I thought I was. I'm not who I thought I was. I am not my clothes in my closet. You know the famous quote from Fight Club. I'm not my car. I'm not the music I listen to. I'm not any of these things. And there was this freeing aspect I found through this book that really got me more interested in other books. And that just led me down a rabbit hole of amazing spiritual books. And before I get into that, I want to go over your comments on last week's episode, part one of this series. And Jojo says, a very informative episode, longtime listener. Thank you, Jojo. Mia says, I can see how the knowledge I get, not only from your channel, but from books, breaks apart my perceptual structure. The walls of the box I used to be in is breaking down and my horizons are expanding. You don't know what you're capable of until you step outside your comfort zone and grow your mind. Beautifully put, Mia. That was excellent. Thank you. Zachariah says, I really connected with the letting go part on last week's episode but I'm still having trouble understanding what I can do now to implement this letting go technique. What do you suggest? And can you expand on this letting go technique? Okay, Zachariah, yes, I can definitely do that. The letting go technique, okay, you're sitting there and you're feeling uncomfortable, maybe there's something happening at work or in your relationship or you're feeling stressed and uneasy and you're sitting in front of the TV. Well, turn the TV off and sit there with the feelings and fully embrace the feelings. This is done greatly in meditation, right? This is a meditation, meditative practice where you sit and you are aware, the awareness that lives inside you. So feel the emotions that come up. Let them come up. Let the distress come up and fully embrace it. Some of the time you will cry. You will feel the tension. You will 
you know, make one of those faces of extreme discomforts. But when you let it come up, you're allowing the release of the emotion and with the emotion, the release of the thoughts that accompany the emotion, right? Because you get the thoughts that lead to the emotion and internally your body is holding on to something that it doesn't understand that it's trying to figure out, right? So when you let those emotions come up, you are allowing your body to figure out and unravel the emotions that have been in a knot within your unconscious mind. So you're unraveling this emotion and you're freeing yourself up when you do that because after you cry or you feel the discomfort, you feel lighter. You feel like the weight that has been on your shoulders is not as bad as it was before when you were watching TV or when you were drinking or when you were on your phone, whatever, right? It's this process of being in the moment and having that awareness and letting all the discomfort come up and releasing it no matter how painful it is. So it's the no pain, no gain situation, right? No pain, you're not going to gain the freedom that follows, so I hope that helps you, Zachariah. And thank you for your comment and question. I really appreciate your questions, everybody. And if you have, a, have any more to send me, please go to unpluganxiety.com. And anywhere on the site under contact, especially, you can send me a question or comment. And uh, I will put it on the show. Or you can do that on YouTube as well. So let's get into the first book. And this is the first book that impacted me, Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose. Very, very powerful. So I want to read you the first passage that I found to be extremely inspiring and uh, useful. If you are not familiar with inner body awareness, close your eyes for a moment and find out if there is life inside your hands, don't ask your mind. It will say, I can't feel anything. Probably, probably it will also say, give me something more interesting to think about. So instead of asking your mind, go to the hands directly. But this I mean, become aware of your subtle feelings of aliveness inside them. It is there. You just have to go there with your attention to notice it. You may get a slight tingling sensation at first, then a feeling of energy or aliveness. If you hold your attention in your hands for a while, the sense of aliveness will intensify. Some people won't even have to close their eyes. They will be able to feel their inner hands at the same time as they read this. Then go to your feet. Keep your attention there for a minute or so and begin to feel your hands and feet at the same time. Then incorporate other parts of the body, legs, arms, abdomen, chest, and so on, into that feeling until you are aware of the inner body as a global sense of aliveness. What I call the inner body isn't really the body anymore, but life energy, the bridge between form and formlessness. 
Make it a habit to feel the inner body as often as you can. After a while, you won't need to close your eyes anymore to feel it. For example, see if you can feel the inner body whenever you listen to somebody. In almost, It almost seems like a paradox. When you are in touch with the inner body, you are not identified with your body anymore, nor are you identified with your mind. This is to say you are no longer identified with form, but moving away from form identification toward formlessness, which we may also call being. It is your essence, identity. Body awareness not only anchors you in the present moment, it is the doorway out of the prison that is the ego. It is it also strengthens the immune system and the body's ability to heal itself. Most people are completely identified with the voice in the head. The incessant stream of involuntarily and compulsive thinking and the emotions that accompany it, that we may describe them as being possessed by their mind. As long as you are completely unaware of this, you take the thinker to be who you are. This is the egoic mind. We call it egoic because there is a sense of self, of I, ego, in every thought, every memory, every interpretation, opinion, viewpoint, reaction, emotion. The ego loves to complain and feel resentful not only about other people, but also about situations. What you can do to a person, you can also do to a situation. Make it into an enemy. The implication is always, this should not be happening. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this. I'm being treated unfairly. And the ego's greatest enemy of all is, of course, the present moment, which is to say life itself. Complaining is not to be confused with informing someone of a mistake or deficiency so that it can be put right. And to refrain from complaining doesn't necessarily mean putting up with the bad quality or behavior. There is no ego in telling the waiter that their soup is cold and needs to be heated up. If you stick to the facts, which are always neutral, how dare you serve me cold soup? That's complaining. There is a me here that loves to feel personally offended by the cold soup and is going to make the most of it. A me that enjoys making someone wrong. The complaining we are talking about is in the service of the ego, not of change. Sometimes it becomes obvious that the ego doesn't really want change so that it can go on complaining. See if you can catch, that is to say notice, the voice in the head. Perhaps in the very moment it complains about something and recognize it for what it is, the voice of the ego, no more than a conditioned mind pattern, a thought. Whenever you notice that voice, you will also realize that you are not the voice, but the one who is aware of it. 
In fact, you are the awareness that is aware of the voice. In the background, there is the awareness. In the foreground, there is the voice, the thinker. In this way, you are becoming free of the ego, free of the unobserved mind. The moment you become aware of the ego in you, it is strictly speaking no longer the ego, but just an old conditioned mind pattern. Ego implies unawareness. Awareness and ego cannot coexist. The old mind pattern or mental habit may still survive and reoccur for a while because it has the momentum of thousands of years of collective human unconsciousness behind it. But every time it is recognized, it is weakened. So that's Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth. Very, very powerful. You learn about the ego. You learn about this voice, the attachment you have to form, the attachment you have to all the things that you own, this voice inside your head, and you become attached to the the shadow aspect of yourself, you know, like uh, Carl Jung talks about the dark parts of ourselves, you experience those voices in your mind that are saying one thing, but you feel something else. Like you think you're a bad person because you're so identified with the voice in your mind, but learning to detach yourself from that voice is freedom. It will allow you to be aware that, hey, that's coming from the shadow. Hey, that, that, what I thought, that really isn't me. That's not what I want. And you can counteract this voice by saying words like, do I really, really want that? And when I would ask myself that question, I would say, no, I don't really want that, right? That's just this voice, this dark part of myself, or that's just this attachment that I don't want to be attached to. That's not really who I am, or that's not what I want to manifest, So that's Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth. I highly, highly recommend that book. Very, very powerful. Now, I want to read you a passage from The Body Keeps the Score. Another powerful, powerful book. This book is all about trauma, the brain, the mind, and healing from trauma, how trauma impacts you, whether it could be some embarrassing moment from high school or a car crash, or the death of a loved one, how our brain reacts to trauma. And this book is by Bessel van der Kolk. Very, very powerful. This is a must read. So the passage that I want to read starts off like this. Our gut feelings signal what is safe, life-sustaining, or threatening, even if we cannot quite explain why we feel a particular way. Our sensory interiority continuously sends us subtle messages about the needs of an organism. Gut feelings also help us to evaluate what is going on around us. They warn us that the guy who is approaching feels creepy, but they also convey that a room with western exposure surrounded by daylilies makes us feel serene. If you have a comfortable connection with your inner sensations, if you can trust them to give you accurate information, you will feel in charge of your body, your feelings, and yourself. 
However, traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies. The past is alive in the form of gnawing interior discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs. And in the attempt to control these processes, they often become expert at ignoring their gut feelings and in numbing awareness of what is played out inside. They learn to hide from their selves. The more people try to push away and ignore internal warning signs, the more likely they are to take over and leave them bewildered, confused, and ashamed. People who cannot comfortably notice what is going on inside become vulnerable to respond to any sensory sensory shift, either by shutting down or by going into panic. They develop a fear of fear itself. We now know that panic symptoms are maintained largely because the individual develops a fear of the bodily sensations associated with panic attacks. The attack may be triggered by something he or she knows is irrational, but fear of the sensations keeps them escalating into a full body emergency. Scared stiff and frozen in fear, collapsing and going numb, describe precisely what terror and trauma feels like. They are in visceral, they are its visceral foundation. The experience of fear derives from primitive responses to threat where escape is thwarted in some way. People's lives will be held hostage to fear until the visceral experience changes. The price of ignoring or distorting the body's messages is being unable to detect what is truly dangerous or harmful for you and just as bad what is safe or nourishing. Self-regulation depends on having a friendly relationship with your body. Without it, You have to rely on external regulation from medication, drugs like alcohol, constant reassurance, or compulsive compliance with the wishes of others. Many of my patients respond to stress not by noticing and naming it, but by developing migraine headaches or asthma attacks. Sandy, a middle-aged visiting nurse, told me she'd be she'd felt terrified and lonely as a child, unseen by her alcoholic parents. She dealt with this by becoming differential to everybody she depended on, including me, her therapist. Whenever her husband made an insensitive remark, she would come down with an asthma attack. By the time she noticed that she couldn't breathe, It was too late for an inhaler to be effective and she had to be taken to the emergency room. Suppressing our inner cries for help does not stop our stress hormones from mobilizing the body. Even though Sandy had learned to ignore her relationship problems and block out her physical distress signals, they showed up in symptoms that demanded her attention. Her therapy focused on identifying the link between her physical sensations and her emotions. 
and I also encouraged her to enroll in a kickboxing program. She had no emergency room visits during the three years she was my patient. So as you can see and hear just from this passage of this amazing book about trauma, that we ignore, we repress, we cope by engaging in impulsive activities to ignore the true emotions. Like I said earlier, with the letting go technique, you're embracing the pain of your true emotions and the thoughts that accompany it. When you are going through anxiety recovery, you have to confront all of that pain and the emotions of your past. And this book lays out how real life symptoms, real life health problems could be linked to past high emotional events that are not dealt with. And it's just brilliant. And I highly recommend this book. And so that's the body keeps the score. And I hope I hope you found that passage to be useful for you. Now, the next book I want to read from is The Brain That Changes Itself, Stories of Personal Triumph from the Frontiers of Brain Science by Norman Doyage. This is a powerful book because he talks about the neural pathways in our brain and how they can rewire how our brain is neuroplastic, that we can change behaviors that we do not like, how we can grow, and why constant growing is necessary for good health and brain health, and also how we can heal ourselves even from severe physical uh, ailments by the brain, by using the brain and its neural pathways. So it's this book is just really, really informative, and I want to read you a passage about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Now the passage starts off like this, but the brain of the obsessive compulsive does not move on or turn the page. Even though he has corrected his spelling mistake, washed the germs of his hands, or apologized for getting for, for forgetting his friend's birthday, he continues to obsess. His automatic gear shift does not work, and the mistake feeling and its pursuant anxiety build in intensity. We now know from brain scans that three parts of the brain are involved in obsessions. We detect mistakes with our orbital frontal cortex, part of the frontal lobe on the underside of the brain just behind our eyes. Scans show that the more obsessive a person is, the more activated the orbital frontal cortex is. Once the orbital frontal cortex has fired the mistake feeling, it sends a signal to the cingulate gyrus located in the deepest part of the cortex. The cingulate triggers the dreadful anxiety that something bad is going to happen unless we correct the mistake and sends signals to both the gut and the heart, causing the physical sensations we associate with dread. The automatic gear shift, the caudate nucleus, sits deep in the center of the brain and allows our thoughts to flow from one to the next unless it's unless, as happens in OCD, the caudate becomes extremely sticky. 
brain scans of OCD patients show that all three brain areas are hyperactive. The orbital frontal cortex and the cingulate turn on and stay on as though locked in the on position together. One reason that Schwartz calls OCD brain lock. Now, Schwartz is the man who's developed an effective plasticity-based treatment that helps not only those with compulsive, obsessive-compulsive disorder, but those of with more everyday worries. And um, that's who uh, Schwartz is. Schwartz sets out to develop a treatment that would change the OCD circuit by unlocking the link between the orbital cortex and the cingulate and normalizing the functioning of the caudate. Schwartz wondered whether patients could shift the caudate manually by paying constant effortful attention and actively focusing on something besides the worry, such as a new pleasurable activity. This approach makes plastic sense because it grows a new brain circuit that gives pleasure and triggers dopamine release, which, as we have seen, rewards the new activity and consolidates and grows new neuronal connections. This new circuit can eventually compete with the older one, and according to use it or lose it, the pathological networks will weaken. With this treatment, we don't so much break bad habits as replace bad behaviors with better ones. That's, that's so powerful. Schwartz divides the theory into a number of steps of which two are key. The first step is for a person having an OCD attack to relabel what is happening to him so that he realizes that what he is experiencing is not an attack of germs, AIDS, or battery acid, but an episode of OCD. He should remember that brain lock occurs in the three parts of the brain. As a therapist, I encourage OCD patients to make the following summary for themselves. Yes, I do have a real problem right now, but it is not germs, it's my OCD. This relabeling allows them to get some distance from the content of the obsession and view it in somewhat the same way Buddhists view suffering in meditation. They observe its effects on them and so slightly separate themselves from it. The OCD patient should also remind himself that the reason the attack doesn't go away immediately is the faulty circuit. Some patients may find it helpful in the midst of an attack to look at the pictures of the abnormal OCD brain scan in Schwartz's book, Brain Lock, and compare it with the more normal brain scans that Schwartz's patients develop with treatment to remind themselves it is possible to change circuits. Schwartz is teaching patients to distinguish between the universal form of OCD, worrisome thoughts and urges that intrude into consciousness, and the content of the obsession, i.e. the dangerous germs. The more patients focus on content, the worse their condition becomes. 
For a long time, therapists have focused on the content as well. The most common treatment for OCD is called exposure and response prevention, a form of behavior therapy that helps about half of the OCD patients make some improvement, though most don't get completely better. If a person fears germs, he is incrementally exposed to more of them in an attempt to desensitize him. In practice, this could mean making patients spend time in toilets. Unfortunately, 30% of patients refused such treatments. Exposure to germs doesn't aim to shift the gear on the next thought. It leads the patient to dwell more intensely on them for a while at least. The second part of the standard behavioral treatment is response prevention, preventing the patient from acting on his compulsion. Another form of therapy, cognitive therapy, is based on the premise that problematic mood and anxiety states are caused by cognitive distortions, inaccurate or exaggerated thoughts. Cognitive Therapists have their OCD patients write down their fears and then list reasons why they don't make sense. But this procedure also immerses the patient into the content of his OCD. As Schwartz says, to teach, to teach a patient to say, my hands are not dirty, is just to repeat something they already knows. Cognitive distortion is just not an intrinsic part of the disease. A patient basically knows that failing to count the cans in the pantry today won't really cause her mother to die a horrible death tonight. The problem is she doesn't feel that way. Psychoanalysts too have focused on the content of the symptoms, many of which deal with troubling sexual and aggressive ideas. They have found that an obsessive thought such as I will hurt my child might express a suppressed anger at the child and that this insight might, in mild cases, be enough to make an obsession go away. But this often does not work with a moderate or severe OCD patient. And while Schultz believes that the origins of many obsessions relate to the kind of conflicts about sex, aggression, and guilt that Freud emphasized, these conflicts explain only the content, not the form of the disorder. After a patient has acknowledged that the worry is a symptom of OCD, the next crucial step is to refocus on a positive, wholesome, ideally pleasure-giving activity the moment he becomes aware he is having an OCD attack. The activity could be gardening, helping somebody, working on a hobby, playing a musical instrument, listening to music, working out, or shooting baskets. An activity that involves another person helps keep the patient focused. If OCD strikes while the patient is driving a car, he should be ready with an activity like a book on tape or a CD. It is essential to do something to shift the gear manually. This may seem like an obvious course of action and may sound simple, but it is not for people with OCD. Schwartz assures his patients that through their manual transmission is sticky with hard work, it can be shifted using their cerebral cortex, one effortful thought or action 
at a time. Now, that's, that's why I'm going to leave you on that passage. Uh, as you can see from this book, very informative about the parts of the brain, yeah, just that passage alone about OCD, which I've had in my past to some degree, is really useful. And he talks more about OCD. He goes into more detail about it and what other techniques you can do to manage OCD and, and to overcome OCD. And not just from like his own personal opinion about it, but through scientific research he lays out what has been done for people in the past to cure their OCD. What's the pattern? What's the common pattern to overcome OCD? But like I said before, it's not this book is not just about OCD. It's about many things, about changing habits. It's about healing yourself from physical injuries through neuroplasticity. It's about staying healthy mentally through old age by continuously learning and improving and experiencing novelty over and over and over again because we need to stimulate the brain. When we get caught in that loop of normality, normality we our brains tend to shut off in some ways. The circuits don't develop and our anxiety and depression start to snowball. So normality is dangerous and constant improving, constant stimulation. When you go and learn something new, it's extremely stimulating. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable, but that's necessary to grow the brain, grow new pathways, and to remain healthy mentally and physically. And that's where I'm going to leave you on today's podcast. I hope you found those passages to be useful. Um, that's the end of the the uh, the book series for now. Um, and next week, there's going to be a, di a different topic that I want to uh, get into. But that's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Le please go to unpluganxiety.com. Send me your comments, questions there. Also, you can leave comments and questions on the YouTube channel or on social media as well. And lastly, do not let anxiety define who you are. I will see you on the next podcast or video. Bye for now. Brad's Powerful Anxiety Recovery Program is now available at unpluganxiety.com. The Anxiety Project Program is downloadable and puts the power of anxiety recovery in your own hands. Visit unpluganxiety.com for more details. Recovery starts now.